This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. Scholarly Communication is an open and ongoing conversation about how communication does knowledge. The premise of the podcast is this. Communicating is not a transferring, as if knowledge might be vacuum-sealed and delivered totally conserved brain-to-brain. No, the premise of the podcast is that research communication is a place in time where people meet to represent and to recreate the things they claim to know. Communication is meaning, as knowledge is too, and meaning is not something we send to receive, it's something that we make. I am your host, Daniel Shea. I invite you to listen to authors of research, to chairs on conferences, to scholars whose work touches or focuses on communication and how the written word of science makes known the real world we know. My guest today is Prem Devanbu, distinguished professor, distinguished research professor in computer science, University of California, Davis. Prem uses large open source code and metadata to improve software tools and processes. Prem's research group is the Decal Lab. That's Davis Excellence Eclectic Extreme Computational Analytics. They are an interdisciplinary community of researchers who study software engineering practice as well as emergent phenomena on the internet, for example, online communities, open source projects and ecosystems, and large corpora of software source code. So let's begin today's episode. Prem Devanbu on scholarly communication. Hi, Prem. Welcome to the program. Oh, thank you for having me. Two major things caught my attention, apart from the obvious fact that you're a renowned researcher in computer science, and they were, first off, last year, your um, most influential paper at ICSE, which my listeners will, if they're from software engineering or even computer science, will know is one of the most uh, distinguished conferences in the realm of software engineering or software systems. And it's worth noting that those papers, uh, very many conferences, I'm doing this for the benefit of, of, of the listeners, very many conferences do have distinguished papers in various categories. At ICSE, they have a paper from 10 years ago that's been judged since to have had the most influence on the theory and practice of software engineering. So this is um, a, a, a real impact paper, not looking forward, but looking backwards and knowing actually what has happened. In fact, I'll even quote here briefly from a technical uh, perspective in 2016 before the paper was even um, recognized, and this is from Gail Murphy. It is not often that research is conducted that changes the course of the field. The demonstration by the authors that software is natural and that statistical language models apply fundamentally opens up new approaches to creating scalable, useful software development tools, end quote. So that's one thing that caught my attention, and I think it caught lots of people's attention. The other thing that really jumped out at me was 
you mentioned Shakespeare <laughs> in the paper. <laughs> now, my background is English studies. I work together with um, scientists, as my listeners will know. But this is officially the first paper that I came across <laughs> in any of the sciences I've worked in where Shakespeare is mentioned. And that was also pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> And maybe you could tell us uh, to 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 get us started there a bit about that paper and and also in particular maybe what aspects of the research you know were the paper were the communication of it where did you where do you think that those ideas succeeded because of the fact that the reading and the writing was done correctly and the group was was really understanding each other. Um, so uh, just to uh, summarize the paper, basically the idea is that um, uh, human communication, you know, often is um, really spectacular, creative, and beautiful, um, like Shakespeare. But um, most often what people say and write is very straightforward, simple, and easy to understand. And it has to be this way because we communicate in noisy and distracting environments. And so there can't be much question about what we're saying uh, in the listener's mind. And this applies to programming as well. So you can write programs in very fancy ways, but most programmers don't because they want their code to be generally understood and be easy to maintain. But that was the thesis of the paper, is that just like most human spoken human language, a written human language is simple and straightforward and easy to understand. Code is as well. And the same kind of straightforward statistical models that were being used 10 years ago for natural language could also be used for code and uh, could do similar things like, um, you know, uh, suggest completions, suggest missing words, uh, correct mistakes, um, and so on. So that was a piece of the paper. Um, so uh, I think you were asking where the ideas for the paper came from or how we communicated it. I'm asking. Yeah, I'm asking. I mean, it's, to come up with those ideas and, and and to publish that paper obviously involved a lot of technical research as well and huge amounts of technical background to have hit upon that. I, I'm interested in the point from there. So, how was it then that this started developing into a structured project? How was it that people started realizing the people on the team is a multi-authored paper, obviously? were realizing, okay, these are the turning points. These are the pivots. These are the main ideas. This is the way that we need to uh, bring it together. And and in particular, what what all of that process you think contributed to the success of the paper? Um, so I think this paper was a little early. Um, so it came out in 2012. And I think the real impact started building after people figured out how to use deep learning models for modeling sequential events like text, right? So the original deep learning models is mostly for vision, but over time they figured out how to use it to model text. Um, RNNs, for example, were the first ones that and could successfully do that. So when people started doing that, there was this now a possibility of scaling up these models with more and more powerful um, architectures um, and capture the structure of sequential text in more and more profound ways. And so that's kind of what really helped us. The, uh, the idea that we developed have tremendous impact is the development of scalable deep learning models for text. Um, so when we first wrote the idea, uh, came up with the idea, we had started with realizing the text was repetitive and then figuring out that we could use language models to model this. Um, Seeing the connection between that and you know human, the way humans express themselves took some time. We did some work on it later, but that took some time. Our first thing we did was build tools. Uh, the very first one we built was code completion. But it took a while before the ideas really caught fire. So I would say it took about four or five years before the ideas really caught fire. It mainly because of the emergence of technology that could really exploit it, which is okay. not it. Okay, so you're looking back then into the so 20, 2008 area. So before this paper even got published is what you're, this is the time frame that you're currently talking about. Is it, Am I understanding that right? 
No, no, we wrote the paper, we did the research in 2011, and the paper came out in 2012, but deep learning models for text really didn't start hitting the mainstream until like 2015-16 is when, okay. you know, at least we understood the implications of deep learning for our research. I see, I see, okay. Yeah. So, so you're also giving me also a little bit of the trajectory of how this line of research, not just this one paper, but the line of research at this paper opened for you and others, obviously, how it developed then from there. Right, right. In the, in the beginning, you know, we, we, there, was a, there, was a li- there was a series of papers using pre, uh, pre-deep learning models, what you might call discrete models, um, for various applications. Um, including code porting, uh, code deobfuscation, and so on. Um, and, but then the field really took off when deep learning models came into the picture. I see. Okay. So this is then really a paper that was, as you were saying, early, ahead of its time, in a way. Um, yeah, I would say so, yeah. Yeah, your, your group was picking up on ideas that you know the te- technology itself hadn't even quite caught up with yet, let's say. Right. I mean, we showed that it was useful and it could improve on the state of the art um, by using language models for code completion. Um, and there's a few ideas that came out, um, and I think it would have it would have progressed slowly, perhaps, if transformer models hadn't come along. What happened after transformer models is the field kind of exploded. I mean, they just it's just you know I, I don't know the exact numbers, but I wouldn't be surprised if a third or half of the papers that are published in software engineering conference these days in the applications of deep learned uh, language models with neural architectures for various software engineering tasks. I mean, we anticipated a lot of this in the first paper of New York, but we just didn't know how long it would take to make it happen and how quickly it would happen. That is, once deep learning models emerged, a lot of applications very quickly became possible. Just, just to stay on this paper for maybe one more question, and uh, 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 to, if you could project yourself back to the time when you were, you know, with the group and and coming up with these ideas, as you say, around twenty eleven, what was it? Uh, because this is also something that uh, researchers are of all stages of career, but certainly early career researchers are interested in, is you know, ideas generation and also the collaboration in a team to really hit upon a strong argument for why things would be perhaps the way that you're imagining they may be. And, and this paper is a kind of a perfect test case for this <laughs> because, you know, I mean, as you say, you were, you were a little bit ahead of what most people were thinking and also what was entirely possible. Um, so if you could project yourself back to that time, what, what do you think was happening? What was the dynamic in the group? What was the good relationships in place or what were, what were the good practices that you're using to be able to really develop this sort of a project? Well, I think I'm a big believer in cross-disciplinary conversations, right? So um, I had a lot of conversations with the colleague of mine who was a bioinformatics person, Vladimir Filkov, another colleague who was Jen Dong Su, who was a programming language researcher. Um, Jen Dong Su and his students had published a paper where they found that Code is very non-unique. They wrote a paper called The Uniqueness of Software, which was published in 2010. And that paper basically showed that almost no sequence of tokens in programs are unique. Everything is repeated. In fact, if you want to do something, find something really unique, you'd have to find like tokens, token sequences of, I don't know, 40, 50 tokens long. Like once you, when you go on beyond that, you'll find unique sequences. Anything shot there is going to be repeated somewhere. So they wrote this paper. It was sort of a curiosity in a way. Um, it, it was just sort of a, a something of a scientific curiosity that did do a lot of uh, fairly serious data analysis to show that this was true. Uh, but it was a very interesting paper. And uh, after I saw this, Jendang uh, was in my department, but didn't even know he was doing this. After I saw the paper presentation, uh, um, you know, once we got home back to Davis, I started asking Jendang, what does this mean? What do you do with this? And, um, you know, so out of that conversation, um, came up with, we sort of had the idea that perhaps um, 
programs that are repetitive, like natural languages repetitive, and maybe there's something we can take from NLP, natural language processing technology, and use it for code. Um, so then, you know, we, a couple of other uh, people, postdocs in our group, Arbar and Eber Hodel joined in, and, you know, we had a reading group on natural language processing. None of us knew anything about it, natural language processing. There was nobody in the department that did natural language processing. So we just started a textbook, which was state-of-the-art at the time, and just, you know, formed a reading club and read the whole book. And then we, you know, started trying to see if we can use this for code. And we were surprised at how effective it was for code, this natural language processing. Um, and so then we decided to, to write a paper uh, about describing how this... Uh, language models could actually be used for software. And, you know, we sat around and brainstormed about all the different possible ways these could be useful. And um, that was the beginning of this paper. That's wonderful. And and some of the things that really jump out at me are these this cross-disciplinary approach, which speaks directly to this idea of, you know, the collaborating that I'm thinking of. Um, I, I generally divide these interviews that I have with researcher authors into, you know, the collaborating framework, the re- reading framework, and the writing framework. You, you've touched upon the reading and the collaborating, but actually, let's let's stick with this collaborative end because just the reading club that you talk about is is, is quite a it's one of those approaches that very many people talk about and sort of set up for a period of time or try or want to see in their research groups or in their institutes. But I hear just as often, well, it fizzled out at some point. It didn't really move. Um, we stopped doing it, unfortunately, they'll often add. Um, so tell me a bit more about this reading group. I mean, you, you've already said yes. So you gr- grab the textbook and everyone just sort of dug in. But uh, give me a bit more, if you could uh, flesh that out. What, what was happening at the group? Um, you know, so we've had this kind of reading group for a long time, as long as I've been at Davis. Um, and, um, you know, we've had something like this. We'd meet every week and usually over lunch, usually on Fridays, and read a paper. Um, somebody would take the lead on presenting the paper, and then the rest of us would try to figure out what was going on, you know. So, um, and we just sort of uh, co opted the group and we read this. Um, this national language processing book. Um, uh, so, you know, that's how it goes. Um, you know, uh, it's uh, it's good for students who are starting out because they kind of learn how to read papers. Um, it's good for professors because often, um, you know, we don't have time to read everything because there's so much going on, especially if you're also teaching. So it's good for professors to get a grasp on a lot of different papers that are going on. Um, so, and uh, we also learn, uh, people learn how to review papers, um, because at, at some point, you know, peer review is at the heart of science, right? So they have to do that. It also helps people, um, review papers. Um, it, it helps people kind of ask deeper questions about the paper. Like, uh, you know, science is all about, like in my view, it's all about asking the right questions. That's really the most important thing. In my field, I mean, often I think that the answers are almost secondary. It's the questions that are important. So, um, you know, reading papers and discussing them often helps students uh, learn, like, what are the right questions to ask? Are they asking the right questions? Is there a more general question lurking in there? Are they missing something they should be asking? Uh, are they making the right assumptions? What assumptions are they making um, that might be right, might be wrong? If their assumptions are wrong, what should you do? Um, so, you know, so reading papers together is, is really excellent. It's just um, you get five or six people who are really interested in the topic together, thinking about a paper and, and discussing it. It's, there's really nothing like it. It's a lot of fun. It's such an amazing picture, if you think about it, because, I mean, if, if we just took sort of a simple contrast in a way, you know, over from the humanities where everybody's reading and writing alone. And then you come over into the area of science and everyone's writing and reading together. I mean, reading together too. This is really what that what gets my attention. Of course, there's going to be lots of reading that goes on at different paces. Um, 
by oneself. I, I fully understand that, but I mean that this is an integral part of the research process. This 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 group reading with people at different levels of career, different areas of experience, even, um, and everyone learning from each other. It just seems so essential to science. This collaborative approach, doesn't it? It is, yeah. Science is a social process. Right? You put an idea out, and other people um, try to figure out if it makes sense, or you made some mistake. Um, um, if you ask the right question, you've got the right answer, and then you go from there. You know, so I'm really interested in, you know, um, my wife is an artist, and my um, my so is my older daughter. So I'm very interested in the sort of artistic process of communication. Which to me, you know, is I write I write a lot of movie reviews and book reviews, which are more I think on non scientific personal side. Um, and to me, the thing about that is um, that what the artist or the creative writer does to me is I try to frame questions that other people are asking, but in an entirely different way that you may not have thought of before, um, in a very personal way, and try to communicate that personal perspective or that personal question uh, you know in 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 your creative writing your creative practice that's the way i understand it. now i'm not i'm not an artist or uh, an expert in literature but or a literary critic but that's sort of the way i see it is that it's very personal um you know the important thing that is a personal perspective yeah yeah i mean i mean this is an interesting topic in itself probably not relevant though to to to, to our, our our current interest but i mean a, a theory that no, i ended up <laughs> no i no i'll keep it in in fact I'm, I'm i'm so tempted i'm going to actually just say one comment and hear what you have to say uh, and this just gets back to the fact that you mentioned shakespeare so i suppose i'm allowed to <laughs> um the the idea that struck me after working for now with scientists for a number of years in the way that they write and use what they even call the literature, which which uh, jumped right out at me uh, immediately, um, because we think of literature without the the in front of it, is that um, they're actually trying very heavily to build upon what is there, whereas at least for let's say about uh, in Western um, literature about the last two hundred plus years the approach has been more to break with what is there. And yeah. um, that, that would speak to this idea of the personal that you were saying. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, right. Yeah. And so it's more about, you know, the, the, the reason why reading groups are so much fun is because everybody's got a different perspective on the same thing. And we can actually very effectively critique each other's ideas. Um, and in some sense, that's kind of one of the challenges of scientific communication to me is, especially in collaborating, is um, you know disagreeing without being discouraging, right? So, especially for a senior person like myself, um, you know, I often hear something that I disagree with uh, from coming from a junior person, and you know, the challenge is to figure out a way to do that disagreement without dis- you know discouraging the junior person because. You know, let's face it, often the best ideas come from very junior people. Um, and uh, so one has to really listen and nurture that and, and help them develop it. People in organizational science will say that um, because you're speaking to an important part of collaboration, the levels of experience or seniority and, and, and juniorness and so on, People in organizational science uh, will tell managers that you should argue like you're right, but you should listen like you're wrong. And nice. <laughs> and it makes me think of what you're describing right here, this idea that, uh, because I've heard this from so very many researchers across fields, that what is coming out of early career researchers, let's say even PhDs, but certainly postdocs, is sometimes fascinating, brilliant stuff, which the managing researcher, him or herself, the PI, may not even fully yet comprehend, right? Or may not even have the expertise in that area to do. So um, uh, talk a little bit more about this relationship, this up, for lack of better words, this up and down relationship in the collaboration of science. Yeah, so, you know, I don't remember the context, but I remember a lot ago hearing something about Zen mind, beginner's mind, right? So this is why I think that it's really good to have junior-senior collaborations and then collaborations outside your own discipline, right? 
So uh, also with reading, like, you know, reading papers outside your own discipline and talking to people outside your own discipline, it's it's great um, because, you know, at least my field, um, software engineering, I, I always think of it as a source of problems. We got problems. <laughs> you know, we, we don't know how to test. We don't know how to um, stop people from making mistakes. Uh, we don't know how to really understand what kind of software people want to build and and then, you know, nail them down as to exactly what they want the software to do. We don't know how to do that. So we don't know how to keep software alive for, you know, a dozen years while everything around it is changing. There's just a lot of problems, you know, we got problems. <laughs> and often the solutions to these problems come from other fields. You know, they come from sociology, they come from natural language processing, from machine learning, they come from programming languages, um, they come from operating systems. So, you know, so in my field, because we're problem-centric, you know, it's almost like you kind of have to do that to talk to people outside your field, and you have to figure out how to communicate the problems you have in the vocabulary that they understand, um, and, you know, try to take what they're offering and figure out how to translate into something that people, human developers, will actually use. So, yeah, so um, I think uh, in my field, it's, it's almost a must, you know, you can't really, you can't really do anything else. It's, you know, it, it, some fields are very math study, you know, so if you understand that kind of math, you can sort of appreciate ideas and contributions and work within that sort of domain of math. But, you know, we're a very practical discipline. If your approach isn't making real programs, you know, better and helping you write them faster and making them more useful, then, you know, it doesn't matter what the math is, you know, but what your sociology is or what your psychology is. So, I mean, your own experience shows this. I mean, you just gave us earlier the anecdote with uh, Zhen Dong Su coming with what you call, what you even called a curiosity, which which is, a, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think a lot of people who perhaps either in uh, software engineering, but certainly outside would, would not imagine, well, how could there be a curiosity, right? I mean... This is this is a field where things are being engineered and built and figured out, and as you say, problems are being fixed. Where where does that sort of approach? But but it's a mindset issue. I mean, as you as you, as you started off with, I mean, this is sort of a this is where creative thinking comes from. I mean, this is where um, you know the right questions get discovered, isn't it? By expanding, by looking to neighboring fields or even further about. Uh, fields that are further afield that's right that's right um yeah so uh, and you know and, and you have to you know I, I made a big push about practical of uh, the field being practical but i think sometimes we carry it too far you know and sometimes i think one has to you know like the work that jendong did was crucial i think it would say our work wouldn't have happened without this paper and it was purely curiosity driven um, and, you know, I think sometimes people in our field, you know, they have this notion of actionability, right? That is, um, you know, theory is worthwhile or even not publishable unless it is actionable. That it, there's something from it you can translate into practice, right? So sometimes I get too hung up on them. I think it's, it's to our detriment. It's become worse in recent years. Um, but, um, but I think, you know, I, I think it's, uh, I think it's essential to to do a certain amount of curiosity driven research, and and this is perhaps as one last point in the area of collaborating before we turn a little bit more to reading and writing. This is definitely also one part that the longer I've talked to researchers about collaborating, the more I've seen that one part of it is the individual. It seems counterintuitive because you're saying, "Hey, collaborating, you're bringing people together," but but which people are you bringing together? What types of people, right? I mean, research fields have their cultures and cultures change. And and as you're saying right now, software engineering is is becoming hardcore practical minded, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you obviously have a personality type or background or inclinations that show up other sides to software engineering, right? That show, mm-hmm. hey, we've got other values here, valuable searches here, not just merely the next fix or patch. So mm-hmm. I suppose I suppose what I'm trying to say is, you know, 
what is it that, let's say, in your own self, you see as being a driver, a motivation to research software engineer in that way? Um, so, um, what what is it? You're asking a personal question, like why? why if it's what, if it's what? not too personal, but like what 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 it is that you see in yourself? You know, I mean, there's clearly going to be a consistency here. I mean, you know, some ten years ago, you published this this groundbreaking paper, and you still seem to notice that you know the field has this potential for cross disciplinary, you know, uh, work, and that it's helpful. So, I mean, for me, looking from the outside, I would say, well, Prem obviously is an open-minded person who doesn't just see it as a, a solution fix sort of approach. Yeah. So I think, you know, what I find interesting about ideas is, uh, you know, practical application, you know, like something that has some connection to practice. Um, that excites me, you know, um, um, I understand the value of theoretical approaches like pure maths or type theory or something like that. Um, but you know, what that, you know, I, I leave it for other people to do and then I recognize the value of it. But for me personally, practical, something that's practical implication is really interesting. Like how things that affect the way people behave, the way they think, the way they feel, you know, so that part is really, really interesting. So, um, you know, building a tool or something that people actually use and find it enjoyable and interesting to use, that's really, you know, makes me happy. Um, you know, uh, all the more fun if what goes into it is some really deep and interesting idea. Um, so, uh, you know, so the, you know, l learning about um, rational speech activity for me, for example, is really interesting. Um, because of the connections between natural language references um, and programs um, and putting them both in a sort of common um, psycholinguistic framework, I thought that was a really interesting idea. It's one of the most interesting ideas I've encountered myself in the last five to ten years. Very good. Uh, well, that, that, that actually provides a nice bridge over into reading, if we might sort of switch our focus into reading papers, reading scientific texts. Because um, the ideas are often what people are looking for in a paper. Uh, right. Usually, it's usually quite easy to find as long as long as the tables and the figures have been done in any reasonable sense, and the methodology or the framework has been set up in any reasonable sense. It's usually fairly easy to get what was happening there. But just as you were saying earlier about this this reading club that you have, you know to bring people together to really make sense of it. See, that that is what's happening for a reader, isn't it? This this mm -hmm. location of ideas. What is this about? Why did they do it, right? These really tough questions. So mm -hmm. maybe to get us started in the reading, you know, what distinguishes for you when you're reading a paper, the paper that's getting through to you? And, and where do you notice where probably the larger set of papers, where do you notice that papers are are just leaving you too open, un, not understanding why or caring enough. Uh, you mean papers that are exciting and papers that are not? <laughs> I I put in lots of words, but yes, that's the idea. <laughs> I suppose I try to get I try to get too specific. <laughs> but yes, yes. Which are the papers that excite, and which are the papers that don't? Yeah, so um, so, so I was thinking back about you know I saw this question in your early email and I was thinking about this like I got, when I got first started working on open source software and you know my I was originally a tool builder and then I kind of shifted into becoming more an experimental uh, doing more experimental science and doing more observational studies and things like that right um, so I remember. Uh, the phenomenon of open source software and this emergence of incredible amounts of data about how people were actually writing code and what kind of mistakes they were making and how they were repairing those mistakes and who was collaborating with whom. Um, and all this data becomes visible in open source projects because they conduct all their activities in the public domain. Um, so I remember, you know, uh, figuring this out very early and having conversations with my colleague, Vladimir Filkov, who was a bioinformatician. And you know, telling and there's just you know so much data out there now about how people write and read and maintain code. Uh, you guys do with a lot, deal with lots of data in the bioinformatics world. 
there's lots of data of all sorts. There's network data, there's uh, text editing data, there's, um, you know, conversations. Um, so why can't we do something uh, with this, right? So then we started reading. And the first paper that actually a book that I read was um, this book called The Cathedral and the Bazaar um, uh, about, by this guy, Eric Raymond, who was discussing what was different about the way open source uh, software was being developed. And he was arguing that open source softwares are like bazaars and closed source softwares are like cathedrals, um, which are very organized and bazaars are not organized. And it's this bazaar-like structure that gives them strength uh, and makes them more robust. Um, and so, you know, I read this, you know, we read this book and we didn't really quite believe this. Like, you know, how can you actually develop software which is very organized and modular and well-structured in this chaotic environment? That doesn't make sense. It goes against how we think software should be designed. Software should be modularized. You know that, right? So if you have a chaotic social structure, how can you have modularized, modularized software? But we didn't quite believe it, so we started doing some research into whether we could test this hypothesis, whether software was really modular or not. Um, so, you know, we collaborated with, um, uh, we found another person, Raisa Disanza, who's uh, interested in social networks and network structures and hierarchical networks and understanding network structures. So we started collaborating and we borrowed some techniques from network physics and network analysis, and we actually assured that these sorts of sub-organizations, sub-teams, spontaneously emerge in open source software, that they organize themselves. And in fact, the way they organize themselves roughly mirrors the structure of the software itself, right? And we have to show, we were able to show this empirically with a bunch of different projects. And that paper actually ended up winning their 10-year test of time award uh, so the paper was published in 2008, and then one was awarded in 2018. So that was kind of an example of how three people with very different perspectives and a grad student, this part, um, uh, you know, got together and you know, sort of like, essentially started wondering whether the book really made sense and found evidence that maybe he's not entirely correct <laughs> in terms of the. Uh, uh, software, open source software teams being chaotic bazaars. Mm-hmm. So, All right, Sarah, yeah. that addresses your question, but <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it it, it does um, definitely, and it and it shows the process, which is what I'm very interested in because it's 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 more about how you've done your research than than what precisely you've researched. Despite the fact that that's, I continually see again and again how interesting that is. But uh, you know what I'm what I'm reaching for is basically. What was your process? What was your method to do these things? And and I mean, what what I draw from your anecdote right there is that, you know, f- first off, cross disciplinary once more, <laughs> very right. much so. But 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 really gleaning out a particular idea from someone's work, and really knowing how to turn it from every side and angle and figure out, you know, does this knock on it from every angle and figure out does this really work? You know, how much does this hold up? It's one thing for something to sound nice and to seem cool, cathedrals and bazaars, but it's another thing for it to really pan out in reality, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so, you know, we took a pretty, I mean, all these uh, hypothesis testing experiments formulate the question in a particular way, you know, so it's entirely possible that somebody would formulate the same question as an experiment in a different way. And come up with different findings. We don't know, you know. It, with, you know, it ha- remains to be seen. You know, uh, you know, there are other ways of looking at this question. Um, but you know, that's that's kind of what makes science, uh, you know, such an exciting um, process to be part of. You know, I always say that replication fail, re- failure to replicate is the best form of flattery. Somebody thought your work was worth replicating, and actually went ahead. And replicated and found that they couldn't. That's great, <laughs> right? Yeah, no, I mean, it's so funny because that is such a scientist's view. You know, I mean, people in other fields would not be so happy about that. But <laughs> yeah, the things that you mentioned there bring in a very important uh, point about hypotheses. Um, I mean, this is like, if you like the sentence in science that needs to be most carefully written. <laughs> I mean, the way you put it, the way you put it there is, you know, you can formulate these questions in different ways. 
and therefore would end up with different answers. I mean, this gets back to your basic point of asking the right questions. But I mean, in the hypothesis, and I've, I've talked with people here who are practicing scientists and also philosophers of science about um, the hypothesis because it's just so central. And th th there's debate around it, right? There's different views as to how it actually works and, and, and what needs to be done with it and how we need to believe in it or not believe in it. And I suppose the the question I'd like to ask just in this context of, of reading is how many of the papers that you're reading in, in your field do you see with explicit hypotheses? And if you see many, then how many of the, those hypotheses do you find are, let's say, well-formulated? And by that, I mean, don't look like they were put in place to prove the paper, right? But look like they were let's say, sincere and honest questions about uh, whatever particular research inquiry they were doing. Right. So, you know, so um, I think our field essentially had sort of an empirical revolution. Um, and I think the person that deserves the most, well, there's a few people that deserve a lot of credit for it. Like starting with Victor Bassini, um, and then like Lionel Briand, um, uh, Jim Erbsled, um, a few people like that, you know, caused this sort of empirical turn in software engineering. Um, and they really, you know, were pushing this idea of like stating what you want to do as a research question, as a hypothesis. And then, you know, being very careful about how you're going to go about testing it and, you know, what statistic you're going to use. Um, and, you know, there, beyond as a paper with a series of caveats about, kinds of mistakes that people could make when they're doing hypothesis testing. Um, so, you know, and there has been also recognition of some of the same kinds of things that have went wrong in psychology, right? So there is actually now um, this this movement to avoid arcing, you know, hypothesis is also known. Um, so th there is this a whole new movement of registered reports. So you register your experiment before you do it. Um, so you don't have this phenomenon of, you know, standing here questions after you've got done the analysis. There's also, I think, a fair, a reasonable place for, you know, sort of exploratory analysis, right? Where you don't really know what you're going to find. You just gather data and you run some analysis and see what's there. Um, I don't see any problem with that as long as it's identified as such, you know, that is the paper is an exploratory analysis of uh, some data set that, you know, nobody's looked at before, for example, right? Yeah, um, so I think that's fair as well, and you know, it's it still happens, but maybe not as much as it used to, uh, because a lot of the, you know, a lot of the questions have become fleshed out. The theory space has become pretty rich in our field, various aspects of our field. Um, but you know, there are there are areas that are just emerging. One thing I'm really excited about is a joint human AI decision making in software engineering. Um, and it's, I think I would view it as still as an emerging field. So what's emerging in the news is also, you would say, emerging in your field as well. Because I mean, this is this is the big topic, isn't it, at the moment for sure? Right, right. I mean, so AI's, you know, in uh, language models make a lot of mistakes, but they're also really useful in software engineering. And, you know, if you, if, uh, if you're using them, then you should have some way of making a rational decision as to whether accept whether you should accept the output from the language model uncritically, or you should look at it carefully and how much time and resources you spend looking at it, or if you just reject it. You know those kinds of decisions. You know we don't know what the right way to make these decisions work well. You know we don't know that yet. One last question, also on this hypothesis of idea, and uh, in particular with with reading, uh, I'm I'm still I still have this picture of the reading club or the reading group that you had established back then, or that you say really just kind of ran through your entire career at UC Davis, and the you know I've heard from others as well that it's it's a making sense in the group, right? All kinds of people are asking questions mm -hmm. to the paper and and really trying to derive from it and. One of the, you know, approaches that people take to the hypothesis is that it's at least solid. If it's if it's formulated correctly, and the predictions in particular that are drawn off of it, yeah, I mean, it's kind of a deductive process that's involved there. 
drawn off of it. Those predictions are ideally yes and no. You know, it, they either failed and rejected, or it didn't fail, and we can at least preliminarily accept it. Um, but the, mm -hmm. the the question I'm getting to is is in reading and in all of this figuring out what the paper was about and what they have and what their results mean. It always just fascinates me, and this is why I feel that I have a job at least into the end of my life helping scientists write. There's always interpretation involved. It's almost unavoidable, even even in the realm of areas where you know the hypothesis seems to be offering us some basis to base to, to say the, the results mean X or they mean Y. And I mean, some of that comes down to the fact that even a hypothesis proven right is not you know, given. It doesn't turn into fact immediately. But I'm even more interested in the cases where there's an accept or reject and you start to wonder, well, the probability is involved. How important is it? Or yeah, you know, what kind of an accept or reject? So in other words, I, I kind of argue against the fact that you ever get a hardcore case of yes, no, when you're dealing with results of that sort in, in, in hypothetical experimental research. I mean, if you can follow, <laughs> because again, I'm using lots of words here. Um, do, 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 you, do you see what I'm talking about? And what is your experience there? So, you know, I mean, you know so our, my field is an engineering field, right? So, um, the you know, uh, formulating really questions is, it's all about the questions. I always keep saying that. And if you ask the right question, in some sense, the answer, whether it is up or down, yes or no, is still going to be interesting if you ask the right question. You know, you don't always get that lucky, but if you do, then you know that's it. Doesn't even matter that much what the question is, right? What the answer is. So one of the, one of the one of the sort of good and bad things that happened about ten years ago, twenty thirteen ish, was this paper from Briand and Arcuri, um, where they were essentially arguing that um, effect sizes really matter. That is, when you answer a hypothesis. It's not just about getting a low p-value. It's also about how much that effect is. You know, so for example, you develop a new testing method um, and you do a hypothesis that this testing method is better than the state-of-the-art. That's, that's your hypothesis and the knowledge that there's no different. So you get you get a low p-value of saying that it's different. But does it actually matter, right? So for it to make for to answer that question, you have to sort of see how much this is testing method cost. And am I finding sufficient number of new bugs that I couldn't catch before? Right. Um, so I, I don't know if that's what you were getting at, but yeah, this that is, is actually that's that's precisely what I meant. It's amazing how you can understand some of the <laughs> garbled <laughs> garbled ideas that I put out there. But that that, that is um, yeah, because it, you know the effect size is then not obvious inside of the hypothesis itself, and right. you know the person who asks that question, well, what? you know, what about the effect size or what was it and so on is precisely starting to complicate this, aren't they? Yes. I mean, so it, it does matter. Um, but I think, you know, as I said, science is the social process. And when, if I'm reviewing a paper, a small effect size by no means means an automatic reject, right? But what I will look at more is what actually is the question? What are the methods being used? And how novel and interesting and potentially impactful are the questions and the methods that are being used to study this, right? So even if coming out of this particular research project, I'm getting a very small effect size, it may not matter. You know, one interesting thing to, I keep telling people is to look at natural language translation, right? I mean, they went from, you know, the blue, the blue, blue is the measure, DNAU is the measure of how good a translation is, right? Once they got beyond 30, 35 blue, the translations became useful, right? The automatic translations became useful. But it took a long time to get there, and they got that in steps of half a blue and a quarter of a blue, right? So sometimes, you know, uh, the, you, yes, you reject the null hypothesis, but you only get a 0.5 blue effect. That's okay. Because over time, you'll build on it. Eventually, you get to a point where people who, two people who don't speak the same language, can actually talk to each other using their forms, right? That's phenomenal, right? It doesn't matter how long it takes you to get there. It doesn't matter if you got that in small steps. So I think in some sense, 
uh, a big effect size can become an unhealthy obsession. You know, you have to look at the whole context of it to see whether it's going to be helping or not. And this lands us squarely in our last topic, which we'll move through uh, a bit quicker than the others right. for sure. And that is uh, the writing of papers, because you've actually just set this up perfectly because of the fact that, you know, there are so many factors to be keeping in mind on any particular project when you go and decide to communicate it, to submit it, and to say, right, this is what it means, here's why, and that's our conclusion. If, if you would, on a somewhat abstract level in the area of, of software engineering, let's say for an ICSE paper, could you walk us through, again, abstractly, what the paper would be doing at each section? I mean, I'm not saying write a paper for us right now, <laughs> but I, I, I'm, I'm trying to say, you know, what is the function that you would expect of the title, of the abstract, the intro, and any other significant parts from there in the paper that um, you would expect to find for sure, right? Um, yeah. So, I mean, unfortunately, I, you know, I, I recently tweeted about this. I feel like we've become a little too obsessive about all papers are supposed to be structured. And I made this comment about, we're doing creative scientific work. We're not writing doc internal documents for a totalitarian political party. <laughs> you know? So I feel like the reviewing, uh, for various reasons, has become very formulaic. Um, you know, people want to see certain things in certain places, and if they're not, not there, they're inclined to reject the paper. And I think that's unfortunate. You know, of course, you know, there are certain things you like to see in a paper, like what is the research question? Yeah, what is the research methodology? Is it sound? Uh, what are the justifications for using this methodology to answer this question? And what are the answers that come out of the experiments? And uh, what are the implications of those answers? And what are the threats to uh, validity in the sense that the, the experiments, uh, you know, ways in which the experiment results might be misleading or not generalizable? So, you know, those are the kinds of things we generally expect to see in experimental software engineering papers. Um, but again, I would say, you know, uh, because of high volumes of submission and very large program committees, um, some of the reviewing has become formulaic. And I think that's not helping for the field. Um, you know, I'm looking back on the papers we've written over the years that, you know, have been influential. And some of them, I feel, in the current climate, would be rejected. That's and because that's, that's a heavy point. That's re that's really interesting. Um, I mean, what you just gave as a sketch of the paper was what I had in mind: functions, in other sure, words, but yeah. but but not not mid or detailed level expectations of exact formulations of things or exact lengths or word counts or numbers of subheadings or whatever. Right? I'm. Uh, what are, if you might, uh, what are some of these things that you're you're calling formulaic? What are some of the, you know, if you don't have fail sorts of elements that you're finding that committees are are actually basing decisions on? Um, you know, uh, people object to, um, uh, for example, the absence of a third stability section or the absence of a related work section, um, or you know, uh, sometimes even to things not being in a certain order in the paper, um, you know, or the absence of certain effect sizes, um, or, uh, you know, I mean, justification for sample sizes, right? And sample sizes mean you're about experimental power. So if, if you're getting a low p-value, out of an experiment, and the experiment itself was done well, then you probably have adequate experimental power because you've got a low p-value. So you know, so there's sometimes these sorts of questions that I think, uh, you know, reflect a sort of, you know, some sort of dogma about what ought to be in a paper. And I think I think I understand why this is. I think I think it's because the reviewing volumes have really gone up, and oftentimes many of the people are new to program committees. And so they're being cautious uh, about how they do their papers. I mean, God bless them for taking on the job. Um, but you know, so I think I think you know, it's it's I don't I don't have a clear solution that I can offer you know to computer science conferences. 
um, because we do, you know, the field is exploding. There are a lot of people, talented people all over the world who are able to contribute and make our field a richer and more um, wonderful thing to be a part of. Uh, but it also means the beginning volume is very high, uh, you know. And so I don't know what the solution is, but it's, it's, it is, it's not just me saying this. You can, you can see a lot of complaints on Twitter about this that people complaining about reviewing, getting more formulaic. Um, some people like Lena Brian, for example, who's a well-known figure in our field, have say, say you know, want to give up on conferences altogether and publish in journals only. But you know, in some sense, that problem will now move to journals. I don't know what to do there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the journal publishing and and conference publishing is a, is a topic to itself. But I, I mean, you're still going to run up against the the reviewer issue there as well. I yeah, mean, the volume. Right. I, I don't know if the journal landscape would change the volume of publication in, in computer science, but but again, that's a different topic, really. Um, I, I want I want to ask one last question on the on this writing point because this is this is really uh, key. What you're bringing up this this formulaic approach to reviewing or sometimes it happening and and also you see it in writers as well, like the mm. feeling that they're supposed to be doing certain things. I mean, you bring up the threats to validity or or the related works, and and you see it also, at least in my experience, you'll see it in, in introductions where it's a rehash of basically, you know, very other similar papers than, you know, mm-hmm. basically a reformulation, you know, because they feel that that's the ground that they need to touch upon. And I, I think there's very good reason to say include less say what you mean get to the point mm-hmm. and and that's that's one way that i try to approve you know assist people who are publishing the work like to ask of each bit as if they were doing an experiment what's its function what do i expect to get out of it and you know can i be sh- you know what's my level of surety that that it will do that for this number of people you know, I mean, that's kind of the way that I would look at words in 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 an introduction, just to go along with the example. So, am I am I speaking to much the same concern there that you're finding amongst reviewers that they're they're falling back upon? Well, I mean, there is some data for this. I mean, back a number of years now, two years ago, there was um, an entire um, batch of reviews over a three year period from PLOS One, which was just in a massive amount of data, and it was searched and um, studied, and it came up again and again. I mean, one of the most common points of criticism was language. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of surprising, you know? I mean, there were a few other points. Methods was also, you know, equally there. But it was kind of surprising because you'd think, like, especially when they quoted some of the reviews, it was kind of irrelevant. Thing. You know, it was like spelling and you know what I mean? Like <laughs> grammar, maybe he, uh, you know, the verb doesn't agree with with this, and and that just doesn't really matter, you know, does it? I mean, yeah. So I, I think, I guess I agree. I mean, there's, you know, for a while there, you know, papers from countries where English is not the first language would often be subject to criticism for, you know, uh, misspelling or grammars or things like that, which you know, as a, as I. English is second language for me, and I don't have a lot of sympathy for that. You know, I mean, we can always edit these papers to have good English. So, uh, that said, I do think you know when you're writing intros, I know you know I I I'm, I often have to stop myself from trying to be a little flowery or personal or you know, I don't know, make elusive in the way I read introductions. And it's not always well received, you know. So, for example, once I said something about the conceit of paper X was that, right? Which is, you know, to me is is nice English. It's not bad. It's not ungrammatical. It's just saying this paper had this conception of this area and that was incorrect, right? But I thought conceit was a nice word to use there. And the reviewer subjected to it, <laughs> you know. And, you know, the, the nationalist paper that I told you about, you know, I had a lot of fun writing that intro, um, you know, a, a referring to Tamil poets and, and Shakespeare and whatnot. Um, and that wasn't particularly well received by the reviewers, right? We objected to it, but we decided to leave it as it is in the final version anyway. <laughs> so, I, 
you know, again, this goes back to my saying that, you know, we're not writing internal documents for, you know, the totalitarian political party. We're writing, doing creative work. And, you know, I think a little bit of fun in the inter- in the intro and the conclusion makes the paper a lot more fun to write and to read, I think. And we should let that go. <laughs> I think that's a great point. And, you know, I mean, it also, on a on a utilitarian level, it serves a function. Because if you can, through your abstract or through your intro in particular, you know, generate the interest in the topic that you yourself carry, well, mm-hmm. then you're, then I... Uh, you know, I would say you're writing it right. I mean, mm-hmm. of course, obviously, you need to state clearly what your hypothesis might be, or you know, what your mm-hmm. data set was, and so on. But that's not really what people are are admitting, right? You know, that's not the problem. <laughs> the problem is <laughs> the problem is that you know they're trying to say things that you know this is what it means, and th- these are things that people are grasping for as well. So I mean, yeah, let the, let them grasp as they grasp. Yeah, you know, so. Yeah, ending ending a paper with something like endless forms, most whatever it was that Darwin said, and you know uh, Watson and Crick with uh, it has not escaped that notice. <laughs> you know, I think that's beautiful. <laughs> um, to to close out, Prem, uh, one thing I always ask my um, researchers when they come as, as as guests on the show is that uh, the purpose of this uh, podcast is really to help the research in some way. Uh, you probably have noticed through my questions that I'm interested in helping early career researchers navigate, you know, the research groups, collaborate better, um, people submit better papers, reviewers um, make better decisions on papers, whatever the case may be. Um, what would be if you had this platform of 30 seconds, what would be one point, big or small, that you would sort of put your finger on and say, if we could just do this differently, you know, we'd be producing better research in software engineering. I'd say focusing on the questions, like what is the actual question that this paper is asking? Um, if And how can we make the answer to this question matter to software practice? Well, thank you very much for that, uh, Prem. That is Prem Devanbu. And thanks, too, to all of you, my listeners. Bye-bye, and until next time here on Scholarly Communication.